This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, I'm delighted to introduce my very special guest, Austin Ratner. And he is an author and a scholar. Before pursuing his career as a writer, Austin attended Princeton University and the University of Michigan. And he also received a medical degree from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, although he was trained to be a physician, and I think he was on his way to being a neurologist, he decided to leave the medical field and become a writer. Uh, in addition to the book we're going to talk about today, The Psychoanalyst's Aversion to Proof, his earlier books include Concepts of Medical Physiology, The Jump Artist, for which he won the Sammy War Prize for Jewish Literature, and the Land of the Living, which was translated into French. The French version was called The Lost Boy. Austin also taught creative writing at the Sackett Street Writers Workshop for the last 10 years. I could say a lot more, but I think we'll learn about this very interesting man and his book. We'll learn a lot more if I ask him questions about his psychoanalyst aversion to proof peppered with a few of my observations. So on that note, I'll start with one of my early observations about the book. Um, you know a great deal about psychoanalysis for a non-analyst. Can you say a bit about that? Um, yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your uh, podcast, and I'm delighted to be here. Um, so how do I know about psychoanalysis, um, even though I'm not an, a psychoanalyst? I came to psychoanal psychoanalysis um, really early through my family. Um, my grandmother was a child analyst, and um, I have had my own personal psychoanalysis. And in addition, um, 
before doing an extensive amount of research to write this book, The Psychoanalyst Subversion to Proof, I did a um, mentorship through the American Psychoanalytic Association where I had, I studied um, some core Freud texts with a with an analyst at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. Um, so I had some semi-formal education in psychoanalysis before doing doing all this research um, to write this book, which involved reading um, uh, uh, even more Freud and uh, a lot of other psychoanalysts as well. Well, that's helpful. I was going to ask you about your fascination for Freud because it's quite, um, it's, well, it's out of the ordinary for somebody who hasn't studied psychoanalysis in depth to be so fascinated with it. And you know, there's a lot of Freud in your book, obviously, uh, but I think you just explained it. <laughs> so thank you. Okay, I'm going to shift a bit now um, to uh a very important topic, and that is to the idea of childhood being important for later development. Uh, some people don't think it is. Obviously, as a psychoanalyst, I do, but and everybody doesn't. So what would you say to a person, with your knowledge of psychoanalysis, what would you say to someone who says, well, I want to change my behavior, Maybe a man, maybe a woman. They may say, my significant other would agree with me. My behavior could really stand to be changed, but I don't really care about the source. I don't, I don't really care about understanding issues or, or why this or that developed. Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think that that probably does reflect the views of some people who are looking for help, you know, um, when people come to a psychotherapist for help they're interested in help with the here and now and what they're feeling at the moment um and um i think um that might be a reason that certain kinds of um quick fix solutions i'll call them you know might be appealing because they're they have they hold out the promise of well let's just deal with what you're feeling what you're what you're thinking and what you're doing in the moment um, and let's change it, you know, and that sounds um, that, that sounds good, but it's unfortunately the human mind is not quite so simple as that. And um, I think that really it's common sense to know that. Um, I mean, I, I think that most people do appreciate the significance of childhood in, in their adult lives. I don't I don't think that's a, a controversial idea anymore. The fact that um, knowing or reviewing the, the, the your childhood experiences could have therapeutic value might be something that's more that's more um, controversial. But I think to begin with, people already are way ahead of where they were before Freud. In, under, in appreciating the influence of childhood and the important, the impact of childhood. And I think that it doesn't, it, you know, I'm not a practicing psychotherapist and, and you are, um, so you know better than I from direct clinical experience, but I would say that um, you don't have to talk to anyone for very long about their feelings or problems before they, um, 
mention their family you know the the family <laughs> the family is and one's feelings about one's primary um family members whether family of origin or family that you've created as an adult um it's pretty central to people's experience so i think that um i don't think that the case is really that hard to make that that one's relationship to one's family members and one's growing up is really important to how you feel as an adult. Um, I, I think that, that, um, and the last thing I would say about it is, is that um, the therapeutic value of thinking about childhood. Um, I think, I think there's a caricature that is out there of psychoanalysis that, Oh, you'll you'll lie down on a couch and you'll free associate about your your childhood and you won't be talking about your present day problems, and I think that that's um, that's outdated. I, I mean, I think that um, that psychoanalysis, while it appreciates the impact of your your family background and your childhood in what in in your constitution your mental constitution and your 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 psychological constitution it isn't a, a modern day psychoanalysis is not a a um it it, it it's not an a sort of um it's not a therapy in which one goes cavorting in reveries the whole time detached from your current problems i mean psychoanalysis i think for many psychoanalysis uh, for many psychoanalysts the 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 treatment begins with today and it begins with the problems and the behaviors just just like cognitive behavioral therapy does um it just brings a more in-depth notion of of psychological complexity feelings um where they come from the 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 roots of those feelings so i can see your enthusiasm in in your answers yeah <laughs> no matter what the question i ask when it has to do with psychoanalysis and that's great to see i would agree that with, when new patients come in i tell them about free association i say yeah that's something that you'll do from time to time, but that doesn't mean that if you have a problem with your significant other, that you don't come in and talk about it or your boss or any other kind of thing. So yeah, I think that's a good, you made a good point there. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to move on uh, just a bit to back to your book. Um, I was very enthused when I read it because I have written something lately and I thought that we were trying to get something in the public eye and what i what i'm trying to get and have been for a number of years and after after writing several books is projective identification which i sometimes called sometimes just call i call it blame shifting but it's it's technically a little different and i think that you're trying to get out there the idea of well first of all how Freud felt about and dealt with criticism. And yeah. so I thought those were similar ideas. As I as I read it more or more often, as I've I've read various parts a number of times, I thought we were what we were talking about was pretty much the same thing, not even just similar. 
Uh, I think that a, an adver- aversion to proof, uh, as you've described it, is an illustration of projective identification. Uh, for example, I think Freud and others who followed him had to rid themselves of feeling criticized, or they wanted to rid themselves of that. So um, it obviously, and then put it elsewhere or onto other people. Can you say a bit about Freud's experience of being criticized because he researched it so much? Um, yes, um, Freud was very sensitive to criticism. Um, I, that, that was true in 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 my research on his life and his letters that he wrote and his um his his career path um he was very sensitive to criticism since long before um publishing anything related to psychoanalysis he he um and i think that it's also a, a, a somewhat universal trait to be sensitive to criticism. I don't think he invented it, but, um, but I think he, he, he had a, a feeling that he was, that he had special capabilities. He, and he wanted to be appreciated and loved. And when he didn't feel that coming his way, um, sometimes he could be uh, irrationally defensive, I would say. Um, and I could say a lot more about that in terms of um, how that personality trait or how that um, sort of defensive psychology in Freud played out once he was trying to deliver to the world an incredibly controversial body of, of knowledge and ideas um, uh, ideas that that were would provoke criticism you know um he the, he was not simply um you know many other scientists were trying to they, they may have they may have encountered criticism they may have encountered um resistance from the outside world to their their ambitions but they weren't necessarily um putting forward paradigm shifting groundbreaking theories that sort of radically revised our notion of human being and they weren't putting forward ideas that dealt with sex and aggression and ideas that that people make people squeamish to think about so the particular subject matter that freud was dealing with was particularly provocative of criticism, and then he was particularly sensitive to it. So it was kind of a recipe for um, there to be some irrational response to the to the stress of the situation. And that was what the book really—that was the origin of the book—was really that I felt from reading um, the introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, reading reading. Um, on the history of the psychoanalytic movement, some and and reading Freud's letters, you could just see this theme of a, a defensive, irrational response to criticism. And um, there's a few there's a few anecdotes. I don't know if they're they're of interest now, but I mean, there's a few anecdotes that I tell about 
particular moments in the history of psychoanalysis and in uh, in in the history of Freud's career where you can really see how he um he had a distorted view of criticism of him where he would uh kind of anticipate it where it where it wasn't there or exaggerate it where you know when it when it came to him and i think i think he was projecting some of his own criticism of him of himself for having um the audacity to gaze on the the forbidden realms of knowledge that he gazed upon in discovering psychoanalysis good point that's where i think projective identification comes in because i think this was projected i agree with you and i think there were people who who identified with it. But um, moving on from that um, point, I, I could talk about projective identification all day, so I'm not going to do that today. <laughs> uh, I'll go back to the, uh, the idea of that, uh, the idea that the aversion to proof is not gone. <laughs> it's still mm -hmm. with us. Uh, and the major obstacle I see, and it, I do think it's a major one, is the long, my long-standing observation that many or most people, uh, including some psychoanalysts, are adverse to conflict. Um, they can't handle criticism even today. So this takes us back to your major point. It, it existed with Freud. Time has gone by. We hope that some of that has shifted, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. It, and that's also um, something that I write about in the book is that um, it the aversion to proof that Freud um, felt because he was averse to the being criticized um he, he um you know it caused him to avoid to avoid proof because it, that was that was getting in the arena and subjecting himself to criticism and i think that that i write about it in the book that that this is not unique to freud that that it has um i think that uh later analysts have a followed Freud's example because Freud made it a um, kind of a, a policy of the whole analytic movement to say, no, we're not going to prove our case because everyone is, else is too resistant to listen to us. So we're not going to do that. We're going to know the truth ourselves and we're going to pass it on in, in these sort of uh, back channels of uh, from one analyst to 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 the next as new analysts are trained but we're not going to we're not going to prove our case um except by uh anecdote or um you, you know um less formal means and and i think later analysts have have taken his word as gospel and have followed that approach. And then I also think B, um, the, the A was a long time ago, but there was an A. Now, now, I'm, <laughs> now I'm on B. There's a, a was that I think they followed Freud's example in avoiding proof. B is that I think that that um, anyone who engages in, in the business 
of trying to prove the validity of psychoanalysis's concepts and the the um, efficacy of psychoanalytic therapy encounters their own aversion to proof that that um, you know I've, I've sometimes asked people to do a thought experiment. Imagine you're you're standing in front of an audience of people who are you know, either neutral or hostile towards the idea of, of psychoanalysis. They're skeptics. Uh, and it's your job to explain to them the validity, prove to them in a, in a talk, the validity of the notion that children have sexual feelings, infantile sexuality. Does that make you feel anything? Do you feel stressed? Do you feel avoidant towards that situation? And I would say, course. I mean, yes, absolutely. So then, um, so I, to me, that's a thought experiment that illustrates the universality of the feeling of wanting to avoid proving these sort of controversial, provocative ideas that are, that are, you know, not the only ideas in psychoanalysis, but they're essential to psychoanalysis. And, um, so yeah, I can, I can, I guess I could leave my answer at, at that for now. Okay, so I'm gonna go back a little bit just to make sure people understand um, the concept of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, you of course understand what aversion to proof means. I do because I've read I've read parts of the book over many many times. But could you just put that in simple terms? Aversion to proof what you're getting at here when it comes to Freud and criticism? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, so Ar Arnie Richards, who um, invited me to publish this book with him, with the IP books, he, he, he actually uh, suggested that title, the psychoanalyst's aversion to proof. I, I had initially um called the idea the psychoanalyst resistance to the task of proof um and um but i think both things are are pretty um say what they mean i mean it it it, it is a uh a group of defense mechanisms that um kind of cause an irrational um avoidance of the activity, the normal scientific activity of proving your case to the public and to skeptics. And, um, and uh, so an example would be when Freud in the introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, towards the end, he says, um, colleagues and friends of psychoanalysis have urged me to publish statistics on the efficacy of, of our treatments, you know, um, to prove, to prove that it works. And he said, no, I won't do it. Um, I, I, I don't think that's a good idea. And his reasons are, are to me totally irrational. I, 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 I mean, um, and I go in, in depth describing the different ways that, that, different defense mechanisms, including um, projection, avoidance, and, and a certain kind of reversal where Freud's own inner conflict about 
the discoveries that he he made um and his his own pride in the in the discoveries that he made get kind of get turned around on him and he imagines he kind of imagines a a tidal wave of hostility coming at him that isn't really there but um but that defense then these defenses interact with each other um and uh his his conviction that the world was coming after him for for what he had discovered caused him to avoid situations where he could be criticized and proof is is you know putting your putting your your putting your ideas to the test is inviting criticism by definition so he he didn't want to do it and um i think it did a it did a terrible it was a terrible mistake in terms of the growth of the field um because today we have we have a ton of evidence especially in the 21st century where neuroscience has validated core psychoanalytic concepts um but going back to you know in 1968 um Howard Chevron published a, a study in science that illustrated the the fact of unconscious emotion and thought and uh the mainstream psychoanalytic community didn't even bother to use the fact they they didn't they, because their their whole modus operandi was to avoid getting in the ring and proving with experiments and such i think that's a very good point and while i think people have certainly moved on in terms of theory and technique from freud i'm I think that the mindset of uh, not getting involved with anything empirical, I, I think that has continued because that feels very current to me, mm -hmm. that, that idea. Um, except for a few people who aren't afraid to speak when attacks are hurled their way, many psychoanalysts seem to accept their fate of only being able to help a few people in a dying profession. You seem to have a different idea, obviously, from what you've said, about the potential for psychoanalytic theory, technique, but maybe most of all for practice, as well as the possibilities for, for the future. Could you say a little bit more about that? I know you have talked about it, but maybe yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, I, I mean, and and I think that, that that question invites a continuation of what I was just saying that that um, while while there are a great many people, current analysts who are averse to proof and to promotion of the field and pessimistic about the prospects of, of such work, there are a whole bunch of, of people that over the last decades have been doing amazing work Um to validate, to to um, explain, to stand up. I mean, I, there are countless examples. Um, just to to just you know, off the top of my head, I mean, um, Sheldon Solomon, who is an experimental psychologist at Skidmore, has done um, decades of research uh, um, validating the sort of uh, Freudian idea that that death anxiety anxiety about the fact of mortality causes denial um and 
And he's done he's done decades of empirical research that validates it. So I mean, it's out there. I mean, and um, neuroscience has has provided um, you know indisputable proof of the unconscious. Um, so proof is possible, and standing up for psychoanalysis is possible. But the, it, it just the the work of it has to get has to get done. And I don't think we have a, a choice. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a choice to say, um, well, it's too hard. So I'm just not, I'm not going to do it because I don't think it's a choice to say, um, to say, well, I'll help who I can help, but I'm not going to, you know, if psychoanalysis is doomed, then so be it. I don't think that, that we have the luxury of that choice. And, um, Carl Sagan, the great, um, you know, public explicator of science and physics, and he, he said about psychoanalysis that um, the unco unconscious irrational emotions um, may well play a, a dominant role in international relations. And if we don't understand ourselves, we're doomed as a species. And um, I really believe that. I mean, I, I mean, there is no, there is no choice here. If we're going to to carry on as a species, we need this uh, amazing body of work that Freud uh, did, and that later psychoanalysts have uh, continued to build upon and and um, evolve and change. And we need it. We need self insight to survive. So um, not only, and so I, you know, I think the need is clear and I, and I am optimistic that it can be done. I think that, that for me, analyzing my own aversion to the work of doing promotion and proof is helpful to uh, relieving the, the paralysis that can attach to the activity. Well, again, I think I think it's also very important for the survival of all of us. Uh, putting that into action may be a little bit a little bit different, but you do have some ideas about that that I want to talk about in a minute or two or in a few minutes. Uh, sort of on that note, your book seems like it would be a good assigned reading for all serious students of psychoanalytic thinking, and I don't mean just students, I mean people who want to move towards changing things. And I think one of the reasons is because it speaks to the truth about criticism in this field and the anxiety that surrounds it. Do you have more thoughts about that? Because people still, as we've both said, don't want to be criticized, just like Freud. So how do you subject this to scrutiny if people don't want to be criticized, because uh, when you do, when you look at things from an empirical perspective, you're always going to have criticism and critique. So, uh, it's, yeah. yeah. So I hear in, in your in your question, in part, um, a question about um, the reception of the book and the reception of these ideas in the psychoanalytic community. And um, there are those like you who um, have been really supportive and I've been really um, 
kind of surprised even by by the extent of support in some quarters um equally surprised by the the extent of um what i would characterize as irrational kind of uh hostility towards the, <laughs> these ideas um in other quarters and um so i i mean i absolutely i think that this is something that uh, everybody who has a stake in the field and who believes in the in and who understands its importance would benefit from doing a little bit of self-reflection on the emotional difficulties that 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 surround proof and public exposition of of psychoanalysis um i i, I like to think that this book also um even though it's looking at psychoanalytic history through a particular lens um is it it has a lot of psychoanalysis in it i mean it has a lot of just you know if you're interested in psychoanalysis it's got a lot it's got a lot in it it's got a lot about psychoanalytic history it's got a lot about theory it's got a lot about um the 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 attempts to validate uh, the, the research and um so hopefully it is it it, it is a beneficial book um for everyone to read. Um, and um, I think that the fact that people might be critical of the book and and they, in my opinion, s- some of their criticisms are, are, are n- not fair or, or uh, irrational. I, the, what I can do is not let that silence me and I can sort of uh, walk the walk that I'm talking in this book and, and just keep doing the work of of calling attention to this this problem and trying to get people to understand it and understand it in themselves so that they can overcome it. Well, there certainly is a lot in one book and it's not it's not super thick but it's it's got a lot in it. You're definitely right about that. To shift gears slightly, although this is definitely in the book and since you've read so much about narcissism, how much of a factor do you think it plays in our ability to see ourselves? Now, that might seem like an obvious answer, but I'll go on a little bit. In other words, you mentioned that Freud talked about his inviolate silence towards others. Do you think he was talking about his wish not to be hated or his desire to be loved? And you've touched on that a little bit, but... Um, it's complicated and complex. Yeah. Um, yeah, he would often say uh, it wasn't it wasn't his job to validate psychoanalysis. Others others should do it. Um, and I do think that there was some deep um, uh, wish for to be loved in that, um, you know, like an emotional, a real emotional um a wish to be loved that dis- that that had a, a distorting effect on his proof activities that he he in some ways misunderstood the act of proof as a as a emotional transaction as some as a as a as a time when he would either be loved or he would not receive the love that he that that he wanted and deserved and the the interference of emotion in the in what should be a purely 
neutral, rational activity of, of proof and um, um, overcoming questions with facts and arguments, um, emotion could, could, could get in the way. On the other hand, Freud was also, uh, you know, as, as we all know, he was the most rhetorically skilled writer you'll ever read. I mean, he, he, and the introductory lectures, while they contain moments of emotional interference around those pockets of emotional interference, it's, the clearest and best exposition of his ideas. I mean, um, he was good at it, even as he denigrated, he denigrated the introductory lectures as if they weren't, they, as if they they, they weren't a, a, a real achievement, as if they weren't as successful as they were. I mean, they 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 were translated into every language around the globe during his lifetime. As a writer, I I can tell you that seems very successful to me and books don't don't often have that life um well, that's a good point that certainly does uh describe uh successful books yeah um, in in section five of your book you discuss some ideas ideas about and solutions to the problems associated with proof aversion uh, for example, the fact that most analysts don't understand what's at stake if this is ignored, uh, I think that's really important. Maybe if the cost of ignoring this topic, if it were known uh, to more people, may maybe more people would be likely to get involved. Any thoughts about that? Well, sometimes, um, it, well, so, so, you know, there there's two ways of measuring the importance of addressing this. It, one is the, the future of the field and the other is the future of the human race. And, you know, I already commented on that, but in terms of the, 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 the importance of doing this work of validation to the survival of the field, um, the pessimism that I've encountered sometimes, I, I, I use an analogy to, um, to describe what I think about it. The analogy is I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Shaker, Shaker Heights um, was named after a, um, a, a, a Protestant sect called the Shakers. Um, they no longer exist. And um, one of the reasons they no longer exist is because they believed in celibacy uh, so devoutly and were so successful in um, viewing to that uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that virtue that they no longer are around. And, um, you know, I feel like many psychoanalysts uh, want to be so chaste about um, the dirty work and the hard business of proof that um, they'll go right on uh, sort of abstaining from that business until they're no longer around. And um, we can't let that happen. Well, you're certainly a good person to be among the leaders of this charge, for sure. Um, and on that note, just to just move slightly to a different topic, related though, but, but different. Um, we both talk about Trump in our books. And now that he's announced his intention to run in 2024, 
Can you say a little bit about his total disregard for truth uh, and how that's destroying democracy, which is also something that I, I talk about in my book, which, which also has as this, the subtitle, Projective Identification, Blame Shifting and the Corruption of Democracy. Yeah, well, uh, my kids would tell you, don't don't get him started about Trump, man. He'll, he'll never <laughs> shut up. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, we're in um, very disconcerting times with the, the, the whole um, political movement that carried Trump to the White House. And so much of it, as you said, so much of that political movement is in disregard for reality, I mean the the denial of um, the denial of election results and the denial of reality. Um, this is a guy. Trump is a guy who um, is a walking case study of Freudian defense mechanisms, and um, I've, I think it's been really interesting to see how Freudian rhetoric has uh just percolated right up to the into the mainstream national discussion around Trump because of it. I mean, you had Nancy Pelosi talking about Trump's projection. Um and um you know, I, and I think it's just because to explain Trump and I actually I wrote an, an op-ed in USA today um a few years ago or during dur during the the Trump presidency with Trump presidency is still a phrase that's hard for me to get out of my mouth because um, uh, it makes me feel ill. But um, the the during the Trump presidency, I published an op-ed saying, you know, we all need to get a little bit more Freudian again um, just to explain this guy, just to understand what we're seeing. Um, so absolutely, I think psychoanalysis is, is a critical um, antidote to the the just unconstrained emotionality of politics right now i don't know if that answers the question but yeah it, it does uh, as a as a starting point anyway and maybe you can tell your your kids that you found the perfect person to talk to trump about because i also could go on for <laughs> hours and i think have so um and i've written a couple of books about him so yeah i yeah. look forward to reading this yeah <laughs> thank you uh maybe we could have a well it wouldn't be a debate it would be a discussion about him at some point yeah anyway moving back to the topic of psychoanalysis i agree with your sense that it is extremely important because it deals with people's feelings it also also focuses on the need people have to be understood Everybody wants to be heard. Everybody wants to be relevant, uh, as we know from social media. That's a whole other topic. But, but we know that people have a strong desire to be liked. Um, I mean, just using that word, I mean, people seem to really thrive on or crave uh, getting likes. How many likes did you get? Or how many, even if they don't say it, I, a lot of people think it. Younger people say it. Uh, well, some a lot of people say it. Um, so I wondered if you had any thoughts about that, although I guess maybe you've answered a lot of that. Uh, j just the idea of the importance of it. 
you have spoken about it, but, but the idea of people wanting to be heard, they might not say it that way, but who doesn't want at least one person in the world to understand them and to hear them? Yeah, I mean, the the the, the amount of people on uh, social media sort of crying out to have have an audience for their their personal lives, um, it speaks to the hunger for something that psychoanalysis does provide. Uh, you know, like uh, psychoanalysts are are good listeners, co- contrary to the old caricature of a remote, you know analyst who who is just you know uh sitting sitting behind the couch and making notes and never saying anything i think that many uh contemporary analysts are are great listeners and um you know um i think yeah anal- uh, psychoanalysis is 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 offering something that people are are hungry for and um, the Psychotherapy Action Network uh, that I'm on the board of, um, they did some market research that actually said that um, that, that that showed that people people are hungry for what psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic psychology has to offer in that in that vein. They they are they're hungry for someone to listen and to help them understand themselves. Hungry to get to the root cause of things, um, to go back to the, one of the first questions that we talked about, you know, um, yes, on one hand, people want quick fixes, but on the other hand, um, people know that, that their own problems are, are deep and they want a deep solution. And, and that's, that, that's, that's what psychoanalytic psychology has to offer. Absolutely. Um, I really like your idea of a, your new initiative idea to rebrand psychoanalysis uh, that you've referred to in your book as the endowment. I think it's a great idea. I also think it would take an army of psychoanalytic warriors, so to speak, and researchers who aren't afraid of criticism or conflict. This endowment would also need the right kind of leadership for sure, and it would take a lot of money. How feasible do you think that is as 2022 comes to a close? Yeah, so I, in the book, I, I uh, in, in kind of um, envisioning certain solutions to the, the, um, the kind of uh, fallen state of the psychoanalytic brand, I guess, um, the, you know, the, the, um, I was trying to say that uh, money is important to the solution, that uh, funding additional research, funding um, PR campaigns um, to let people know about the, f- the, 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 the facts of what psychoanalysis has, can do, that it works, that its core principles are valid. All of that costs money to do that work, and so I had envisioned um, creating an endowment that might be able to underwrite that work. I, so, what you know, I, I've become I've gotten involved with the American Psychoanalytic Association, and I'm I'm on the committee uh, for public information, and I'm on the board of the Psychotherapy Action Network, and so my first my first uh, steps in my own work as an advocate 
um, has been to um, try to link up with others who are, are, are already engaged in advocacy and, um, and try to be supportive of them um, and try to work with them. So that, that, that's where, where I am with that fundraising is, is a, a piece of the work. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on the development committee for the psychotherapy action network. And so I've actually, you know, I've actually gone to bat asking, people for money for, for Cyan and Cyan has, um, already accomplished some great things in terms of PR for the field of psychoanalytic psychology. Um, so, you know, how feasible is it, this idea of a, of an endowment, um, separate from uh, something new, you know, um, I think that, um, I'm waiting to see how, um, APSA's efforts uh, go and how the Psychotherapy Action Network's efforts go. And um, I'm hopeful that the new directions at APSA and new organizations like Cyan are going to start to get some traction on this issue. And, um, you know, I, I always, uh, I, I, I always have quixotic idealistic projects that I'm engaged with. And if it comes down to my feeling that, um, you know, some, uh, some new organization needs, has a need, there's a need for it. Then, then, uh, I'm, I'm here to think about it with anybody else who, who wants to work with me on that. That's great. That's really great to know. I'm always interested in things like that as well. So good to know. And I think we could talk about your new and refreshing and really in-depth, just wonderful ideas about psychoanalysis in a several-part series. And in, so in what I hope will be part one, uh, do, you, do you have any other thoughts that you think are important to add today to part one? I'll be presumptuous, part one. Uh, no, I'd love to come back and talk with you some more. Um, I think I, I probably have uh, uh, bloviated enough um, for today, but um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and the, um, the 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 care and attention that you brought to thinking about um, my work, which you know is. Uh, a passion project, a labor of love, and it was hard, and it it, it continues to be hard and kind of lonely. Um, so it's it's uh, it's meaningful to when someone appreciates it, and um, I really thank you. Well, you're very welcome. It really is a wonderful book, and, and I hope many, 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 many people read it. Uh, so, in closing, I'd like to thank you very much for sharing your wonderful ideas and for writing this, this truly inspirational book with us. So, or with me, and um, I hope you ask those people who read it. So um, with that, uh, we stop for today, but uh, hopefully I will see you again soon.